Jeremy, what does it mean to have your affairs in order? You've heard that phrase, right? I have heard that phrase. uh, And the word affair initially gave me a different vibe. But to have my affairs... Multiple affairs. I don't have affairs, Julie. No, I knew that. That's absolutely true. Well, you've... Yeah, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, something that... People say when something big happens in their life and they say, I got to get my affairs in order. So, you know, <laughs> but I think that in the movies they say that and then they never show you what they're actually doing. You just assume that their affairs are either in order or not in order. Uh, so I don't think I have any subtext to that. Yeah, are you going to tell mean, me what these affairs really are? I guess. I mean, that's what, sort of what the focus of this episode is today. I mean, usually it occurs after someone has died or got like diagnosed with a serious illness, like did they or do they have their affairs in order? Yeah, like it can mean a lot of things. Is it financial allocations? Is it a healthcare power of attorney? Is it a living will? Is it just like the legacy contact on your iPhone? Have you heard of that? I just found that out recently. You can designate nope. like who's allowed to get into your stuff on your phone. You can, oh, I didn't know that. It's part of your phone called yes. a legacy contact. Jeremy, like, do you have a living will? Yes. You do? When did yes. you create it? A couple years ago, I don't know. It was definitely after child one okay. when you start to realize that you have to start making decisions for somebody besides yourself. Certainly. Um, but yeah, we have a living will, and I did it very much through the old LegalZoom.com type of thing <laughs> just to have something. Like, absolutely. I have no more affairs in order than that. Good. All right. Well, maybe that'll change at the end of this episode. But yeah, I think it's human to want to put off these decisions and plans because it forces us to confront our own mortality. And I don't know about you, but I do partake in the occasional existential crisis. Uh, And to be honest, those feelings are less than pleasant. Um, But yeah, how can we make these things less scary and daunting? I don't know. What if what if you had another doctor friend to help explain end of life planning? Do you think you'd be willing to take action if you just understood your options better? My personal experience with end of life planning is that it tends to happen right at the end of life nice. instead of leading up to the end of life so that we're ready to go. So I remember being in ICUs dealing with people very much at the end of their life yeah. and people saying, we've never had this conversation. And you say, oh, man. Um, and so then you would have a, you know, it's like consult palliative care or consult uh, hospice. And they'd be like, this is not exactly what we were meant to do. Right. We, were, we were supposed to be here like six months ago, minimum. Yeah. Um, this this is we're well beyond it. So I, I think where you're heading here is we're going to learn from somebody on maybe what it means to actually get these affairs in order and maybe how to have these difficult conversations um, and maybe the resources and such. Am I on the right track here? Yeah, you absolutely are. And sometimes these decisions uh, pertain specifically to ourselves and our choices and our needs. And sometimes they might pertain to other people in your life that you care about. And maybe you're in charge of those decisions or it's a big family decision. So yeah, I mean, in today's episode, we did just that. We have a wonderful expert in the field of palliative care to help us understand how to navigate end-of-life care, both for ourselves and for the loved ones in our lives. So yeah, let's all get our affairs in order, shall we? Welcome to Your Doctor Friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions, and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right, welcome back. We are so happy to welcome today's guest, who is going to help us through some some tough conversations today, Jeremy. 
I would love to welcome Matthew Tyler, MD. Dr. Tyler was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, he moved to Cincinnati, Ohio for medical school at the University of Cincinnati, and he, then he came to Chicago for his internal medicine residency and fellowship in hospice and palliative medicine at Northwestern University. Um, he's the section chief of hospice and palliative care at Ascension Healthcare. He's been providing care for patients in their homes, in the clinic, and in the hospital for over a decade. He also has a big social media presence uh, with the Instagram and YouTube handle of How to Train Your Doctor, which I thought was adorable and wonderful and very memorable. Um, and he provides meaningful, kind information regarding palliative care, hospice, and just general end-of-life questions for everyone. Uh, his website, which is howtotrainyourdoctor.com, provides support and resources for navigating serious illnesses. It's totally free, and it is so incredibly helpful. I spent a lot of time on it preparing for today's episode. So, Dr. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us today to help us get our affairs in order. Welcome. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you for such a nice intro. That was lovely. Oh. I have a very important question. Is that the same University of Cincinnati of the famed Taylor Swift's boyfriend? The same one, the one, the one and only. That's right. That's right. I just had to make sure I had to get that off my chest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Swift. I love it. <laughs> this is very topical, you guys. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's get started. Although we can talk about football and Taylor Swift the whole time, too, if you'd like. I, that's much more, That's much easier than talking about death and our mortality. And not for me. I have, I have a lot less to say about football, honestly. Um, we'll probably, there'll probably be, ironically, more uncomfortable silences if we go the route of football. This is I like, just wanted to get Taylor's name in there for SEO purposes. We're yeah. good. We can move on. Nailed it. This is... Two dumb sports doc talk to the end of life care guy. Yeah. <laughs> that could be a thing. All right. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Let's do it right now. Matt, can you explain to us? This is the always the big question I wanted to start with. What's the difference between palliative care and hospice? Perfect. Like, that's a lot of where some of the, the um, misinformation and myths and myth busting needs to happen. Well, our specialty doesn't do ourselves any favors by having the two like right there next to each other in like our, our title of hospice and, and palliative medicine fellow and fellowship and all that. Um, so where, where they are linked and, and what we do have in common between hospice and palliative medicine is that they are both the specialty team-based holistic approaches to your care. They're very person-centered and focused on making plans that are built around you and what's important to you. Uh, where they diverge is that palliative care, palliative support is available for anyone with a serious illness from the moment you're receiving a diagnosis. There's no prognosis attached to palliative care um, eligibility or anything like that. Uh, whereas hospice care is specifically intended to provide comfort care to people who we think to the best of our ability to predict to have a life expectancy of six months or less if their illness runs its natural course. Okay. That's really helpful. So it's kind of like a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square kind of situation to some degree. Yes. Yeah. Some folks will say that all hospice is a type of palliative care, but not all palliative sure. care is hospice. Main thing being, it's never it's never too early for palliative care. You touched on this briefly in your awesome explanation, but like who qualifies for each? And like when should we seek out this kind of care for ourselves or for a loved one? Yeah, so if you have any sort of a, a serious life-limiting illness like like cancer or heart failure or end-stage renal disease on dialysis, anything that is serious and impacting your quality of life, you should meet with a palliative team. You should see what they have to offer you and see what they can do to make your time better than it already is. Um, 
And that's really it. There's no really eligibility of, of palliative care beyond that. Hospice is a little bit more strict in its criteria and that you have to be specifically mm-hmm. opting for a comfort-focused approach to your care, whereas palliative care, and we take all comers if you want to live as long as possible. That's cool. Come come hang out with palliative care. Um, whereas hospice care is a, a particular preference for comfort measures and with a life expectancy of, of six months or less. Got it. Consider myself a relatively social person. I feel like I've been in many circles of many different age groups. I don't feel like a lot of people have said, hey, I was going to the palliative care doctor next week. Um, So it seems like you're saying if you have medical conditions, it's not unreasonable to engage a palliative care doctor even early on in the process just to kind of get a sense of how do you do that better. Yeah. But do you think that that happens and if it doesn't happen why don't you think it happens uh so you're you're raising another point here which is something else that palliative care and hospice have in common is that we both get involved way too little way too late um you know one of our one of our favorite studies uh, in in the field of palliative care was this one out in 2010 uh, where they compared folks with stage four lung cancer who received palliative care referrals at the time that they were diagnosed versus those who just got typical routine oncologic care and we, meaning palliative care, we did all the things that you would expect us to do, you know, less aggressive care at the end of life, a higher quality of life. Uh, but the big thing that everyone like was so nuts to advertise was that like people receiving palliative care early also lived longer than those who didn't. Mm-hmm. And you can speculate about why that is um, and all that. But uh, yeah, I mean, really the, the punchline is that there's no, there's no real trade-off in terms of like length of life with palliative care and they do all the other great stuff too. Um, and yet, uh, many docs still feel like palliative care, like there's some sort of timing mechanism that you need to get over. Now we still hear this notion that, it's, oh, it's too soon for palliative care. And oftentimes I find people are being referred to palliative care when it's frankly like time for hospice care. And we sort of missed the boat on that, mm. like years or months even of, of support you could be getting from palliative care along the way. Um, I'll also add it's very heavily region dependent, resource dependent too. Um out of care, you know, the big departments are in the academic medical centers, whereas at your community hospital, you may or may not even have a palliative team on the inpatient side, uh, much less like a clinic that you could go to alongside your your cancer care, heart failure treatments or whatever else. So there's a lot of variability and that makes it hard to give kind of a one size fits all, like talk about this sort of thing, um, because there's the, the, the care and support that we want to provide and and then the care and support that's kind of out there readily available to folks across the country. Sure. Who who provides this care? I know that there's fellowship trained physicians like yourself. It's probably, I'm guessing, would be kind of the team leader. But you mentioned like the palliative care team. Like who's on this team? Who does this for people? Uh, another one of the things that's heavily dependent on, on the team, uh, another popular saying is if you've met one palliative care team, you've met one palliative care team. Um, but but at its at its core, it's it's multidisciplinary. So really, at minimum, there ought to be you know, at least a, a doc, a nurse involved in in a palliative care team. Uh, really, standard of care would be rounding that up with a social worker and a chaplain as well. And depending on how big of a of a center you're at, you may have a pharmacist playing around there, or a physical therapist, or a dietitian. Um, uh, heavily heavily um, center dependent. Yeah, on resources, just like. Many other facets of medicine as well. Maybe it rings a bell, yeah. (laughs) And like other facets of medicine, who's paying for this? Is it covered by insurance? 
it, you know, is it covered by Medicare? Is it covered for a certain period of time? Like, do you feel like there's constraints as far as the financial side of things? Yeah. So palliative care um, is as covered as anything else. It depends on your insurance plan and kind of making sure that you're in network and all the other stuff that you worry about with any other specialist. Um, but yeah, typically it's it's covered just like any other specialty care within your insurance provider. Um, on, on the hospice side of things, hospice care is, is all completely covered by Medicare and any other private insurance. Um, the, the major caveat being when it comes to hospice care is that if you need 24-hour caregiver support, like a private caregiver, or you need long-term nursing home care, that's that's not part of the hospice benefit and not covered through Medicare and can be a very tricky sticking point for people who need that level of support. Are most of the people coming to maybe yourself, because you, you said, I'm sure it varies, are they referred to you? Like a primary care says it's a referral, or are these people who are seeking out palliative care on their own, combination of both? Yeah, so this is a kind of a great question in terms of how do you how do you get connected with a palliative team in the first place hmm. uh, so so most typically yeah for a palliative care um, specialty you need a referral from your from your main doctor whether that's a primary care doctor or your oncologist um, you can you can try to like self-refer meaning kind of look around at what's in your area and say hey I'd like to connect with you like what do I need and they may be able to reach out to your primary care doc or get whatever referrals they need again that sort of depends on your insurance plan too some plans require that referral from your PCP and some let you just sort of show up and and they'll cover you. Um, on the hospice side of things, you can absolutely self-refer. Uh, you can reach out to a hospice directly. They have a, a physician that will evaluate your case and determine if you meet their criteria. And and that that can be enough too. Um, and in some cases, you may need two docs. So you may need the PCP to uh, or the oncologist or whoever to also agree with, with the prognosis piece of eligibility. But mm. a lot of times hospice yeah certainly you can self-refer in that case i see this like spectrum of patients along on like the spectrum of life that could end up in front of you and i think to myself that if a patient went in and saw their primary care and the primary care said you know i think you should see a palliative care specialist that maybe the first reaction maybe is why do you want me to see palliative care am i dying yeah. and i'm sure that maybe that's not the perception that maybe you want so how do we get how do we improve that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I mean, that would be awesome if a PCB just said out of the blue, I'd like to refer you to palliative care. That's usually... <laughs> so So we need to start even before that, I guess, is what you're yeah. saying. We need the... <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think ideally that doc would have a general sense of what they're hoping to, to accomplish by referring to that patient to palliative care. Um, so they might instead say, you know, I, I noticed like you've got a lot of medical issues and you seem to be you know, caring a lot. Uh, I wonder if you might benefit from a little extra support from a, a palliative care team. And, you know, they're this great person-centered team that talks about what matters most and make sure that what's important to you is at the center of our medical plan. And, you know, I would appreciate just getting their input on what we're doing here. And I think most people would say that sounds great. Uh, and in fact, in focus groups where they study this, that's, that is what they say. Yeah. So palliative care, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily dying. It's the opposite that they're trying to make you live. Yes. The the, the caveat being sometimes that is why we get referrals is the right. uh, a doctor's trying to tell you something and they don't know how. And so they want us to try to, to do it too. Um, and, you know, that's, that, that's a different sort of situation that sucks when that happens. Um, 
But, you know, we are one of our specialties is, is breaking bad news and kind of talking about how to make the most of of time when something terrible has happened. And that's OK, too. We'll, we'll take we'll take all comers. But I, ideally, it's not to, you know, punt a difficult conversation, but to supplement the support that someone could benefit from. Yeah. I also feel like there's probably a 50 year old who has no medical problems mm -hmm. and is like, I'm going to get on this palliative care thing and then shows up in front of you. Like, what do you do with that person? You know, like they just, they, I have no medical problems. I'm, I run five times a week. I feel great, but I heard palliative care is a good thing for me. Yeah. And it, it depends. We, we, we custom fit it. So in, in a case like that, it really is just getting a sense of you know, what is important to them and, and what's their quality of life and what are their support needs right now. And for someone who's otherwise healthy and just wants to kind of cross their T's and dot their I's, it may just be reviewing, you know, do you have a healthcare power of attorney? Like, do you, do you have a living will? Or do you know what those things are? Maybe we can talk about those and complete those at a, at a pace that feels helpful to you. Um, and in fact, with with the Medicare, their annual wellness visits, um, advanced care planning, um, kind of what we're talking about here when it comes to healthcare power of attorney and things that kind of part of the the expectations for the wellness exam and you there's even a billing code for these kinds of conversations too so it's all it's all baked in to kind of um have a conversation that's helpful you know based on what's going on in your life and with your health well and shit dr tyler i didn't realize that doctors actually still sat down and answered questions and spent time with patients talking so it's really nice to hear that there's still a specialty that does that it's hard yeah it's hard uh you know it's uh well especially with primary care and you're up you're up against a lot of very difficult schedules and times and uh our our hope is not to be like taking patients away or or you know coming in between the doctor patient relationship that's there but you know, supplementing that and kind of helping us you know accomplish the same stuff which is just delivering good care it seems like palliative care has a lot of parallels to preventive medicine, like we've talked about a lot on this podcast and how preventive medicine mm. is not well reimbursed and is um, maybe not as encouraged or taught as well to many healthcare providers. And it almost seems like palliative care may be in that parallel being like prevention of suffering. You know, I mean, you're maybe not preventing someone from having a bad disease. They have the bad disease, but it it may facilitate conversations to prevent needless suffering is really the word that I'm thinking of, whether that's mental anguish or difficulty with family and caregiving. And I don't know, I mean, it sounds like it's more of a, hey, let's clarify things and and make make the journey easier for folks. And to me, that's prevention, too. Yeah, I think. Um, well, there, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there when it comes to suffering and we're kind of getting existential here. Um, but certainly <laughs> a, a, a big part of our role is to even just bear witness to suffering and, and validate that and like give that space. Um, mm -hmm. and it, it can be tricky as, as doctors, like we go into training to learn how to fix things and, and cure things and make things better. And there are some things that you can't fix and it is it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable as a doc to be faced with something that you can't fix. And the reality is that patients and caregivers, they, they pick up on a doc that wants to confront those things and the ones that want to brush it under the rug. And we we don't want to bring up something that we can't fix, but there is a lot of therapeutic value into just like talking about difficult things without, without an answer and just saying like, yeah, this really sucks. And, um, <laughs> and the amount of thank yous and just like, size of relief that I get just from acknowledging something sucks, man, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe the therapeutic value of that. I, I, I promise. 
Yeah, just the validation and the commiseration. Yeah, so much. That. I'd like to just do a few specifics about hospice and and particularly like dispelling some rumors and myth myths about hospice, which you do a wonderful job on <laughs> on your content that you put put out on YouTube and on Instagram. Um, so I'm sure you'll manage these very well. But okay, so like, what if I don't die within six months? Can I stay in hospice care? What if I'm not dead? Yes. After six months. Yeah. So yeah, you can stay in hospice care. They they kill you. <laughs> uh, well, that all oh, man. Leave this you're call. Really, you're really getting to the spicy parts of the myth busting. Um, because uh, that's a big one. Um, we can come yeah. back to that one. Uh, so to to qualify for hospice care at any point, whether you're one day into hospice or six months into hospice, so long as the the hospice doc believes that if things run their natural course that you have six months or less, um, you can re-qualify for hospice care. Um, to get one step deeper into the weeds, hospice care is sort of broken up into what we call these benefit periods that are mm. X, X number of months apart. And every benefit period, the team is reassessing how things are going. And so long as there is a, a clear, steady decline, then you'll always re-qualify for hospice care, which is something that Got we it. do in the background. Um, if you, in fact, do just straight up get better, uh, there are in some cases where the teams will say, oh, geez, like I don't actually think they have six months or less to live, in which case we euphemistically say they graduate from hospice care, um, which is like right. a nice way of saying we're kicking you out of hospice um, so yeah. as not to be committing Medicare fraud. Um, and um, that's a thing. And, it, 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 and it, it's that sucks, too, because hospice care is one of the... Um, most comprehensive home in-home supports we have for anyone mm -hmm. and no one really does what hospice care does which for folks who aren't familiar with what it actually looks like to get hospice at home it's nursing visits throughout the week they're delivering meds to your home adjusting meds for symptom management delivering equipment you might need like a hospital bed a wheelchair oxygen and there's no like criteria for getting the oxygen like there is typically um you have 24-7 triage line where you can call day or night and even have a nurse come out to your home to kind of troubleshoot things if you need. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not like completely comprehensive as far as caregiving 24-7, but it, it's certainly head and shoulders above what a home health group or anything equivalent could do. And 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 typically the folks that get so much better in hospice care that we're not sure they qualify tend to be folks with cognitive impairment, dementia, for whom the real treatment is supportive care. And then they get the supportive care, they do better, and so we take away the supportive care, mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's really depressing um, yeah. that uh, the system is built that way. But uh, uh, but yeah. Well, so people do people end up cycling? They, like in that they case, can, like, they get yeah. worse, and then and then they end up back on hospice, and like it just becomes this almost perpetual cycle, almost, which sounds brutal. Yeah, and some of this gets into how on the level some like some of the hospices are that are saying people qualify mm -hmm. and there's been mm -hmm. increasing amount of attention in in big in big name um news outlets about the kind of shiesty side of hospice and you know, the difference in care between a for-profit hospice versus a non-for-profit hospice sure and, um that's a piece of it too and the the massive variability in quality is uh, is a challenge again when we talk about just public education and trying to proclaim like the goodness of hospice and the great things they do. 
I, I mean, I've heard plenty of horror stories from people and I absolutely believe them too, because not all hospices are created equal in the same way that, you know, any specialty was like, we've all, we've all heard those stories from people who just went to a doc and they were just, a, they just sucked and they're rude and dismissive. Right. And you're like, oh, geez, like, but, but, uh, you know, and I know that doesn't mean like all doctors are terrible, um, but also mm -hmm. like their story is also true. And it's yeah. walking that walking that line to say, okay, well, how can we do things differently and better to get this person the support and care that they need? Can you expand on that? Like, how would you tell somebody to find a good hospice? Like, are there certain things that stand out of ones that are more reputable versus ones that aren't? Yeah. So again, we get into the uh, somewhat spicy debate of for-profit versus non-for-profit hospices. And if you, if you just go high level comparing one bucket to the other, there you get better care than not-for-profit hospice, um, mm. and there are people who are very provide very good care in for-profit hospices. And I want to be upfront about that. But within the intervariability about each of them, like typically, if you're just picking blind, not-for-profit is going to hedge your bets better. Um, you can also go on. Uh, you can Google like Medicare find hospice near me, and there's a database. You can plug in your zip code, and you can see who's around you. Because uh, again, I'll, I'll talk to folks in rural areas where they only have one hospice, so it's not exactly mm -hmm. like they have choice here. Whereas in Chicago, it dozens, uh, tons, tons of hospices to choose from, and so you can shop around a little bit more. Um, and what that might look like is typing in that zip code and looking at what's in your area, and they have their like star star ratings based on uh, caregiver and family reports of, of quality and other metrics uh, they have too. I think that's a, that's a great place to start. Um, and if you're already plugged in with a medical team who has a social worker, they often kind of have their ear to the ground and can tell you, you know, who's who's had a good experience with, with group two. I love that you brought up um, the extensive care that comes with hospice because I, I think that's one of the biggest myths I feel like I deal with with people is understanding even what hospice yeah. is. You yeah. know, again, the concept of I think maybe it's media that gives us this impression, but we think of hospice as being somebody laying in a hospital bed and basically having a beep going off behind them and they just lay there comatose. Yeah. And like, that's hospice care. And it's like, that's not what hospice care is. Like that you get all this home stuff that, that you mentioned and, and that's why people do so great because they're just so supportive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and why we encourage people if they have these conditions to engage hospice. I mean, even if you get denied, it's worth trying. It's like, you know, you apply yeah. and if you get denied it means you didn't qualify but you may qualify later yeah well and there's so there's a lot to unpack here um that i think is worth diving into which is um th th this notion that you need to be like imminently dying to to even be talking about end-of-life care or, or or hospice care and that that does you a great disservice on the on the quality of time that you can have um up until that point when you're imminently dying and and this is where it's important to really reflect on what your own what we call goals of care are and what your priorities are and often this requires the patient the caregiver to step up and initiate a conversation with their doctor and and part of why i chose the handle how to train your doctor is that <laughs> we know like we get like in med school and residency like a, a little bit of training on breaking bad news and and goals of care conversations but it's far from comprehensive, and um, and most doctors just don't know how to start these conversations. And they want to, they want to, but they either don't have time or don't have the training to really do it in a way that they're confident will be therapeutic and not just make things harder or worse or, or traumatic to the patient. Um, so if if you are someone who is having a hard time with a particular 
chronic illness or a particular treatment for an illness of which there's no cure. It's helpful to reflect on now, what am I getting out of this? Like, what does, what does quality time mean to me? And do I feel like this, this treatment is giving it to me or not? And if you don't feel like it is to speak up into your doc and say, Hey, like, this is really what living means to me. And I feel like I'm not checking these boxes right now. Can we talk about another way to do this? Um, the other, the other common kind of checkpoint that I talk to folks, especially hospitalized folks are is, you know, if ever you're getting to a point where you just, you don't want to go to the hospital anymore, like, it, like, and really, really don't want to go back. Not like, you know, like no one wants to go to the hospital, but if you're getting to the point where you're thinking, gee, like if something else happens, I would rather just be at home and spend my last days at home. Um, even if it doesn't feel like you're dying right that minute, that would be a great time to consider referring to hospice care and seeing what they can do to just make that time at home that much better and, and more fun and enjoyable. I like to create real world kind of examples um, just to make things a bit more understandable to our listeners and really, really just for me personally as well. Yeah. So let's say I'm diagnosed with breast cancer after a mammogram. Um, we're going to do everything we can to fight this disease, but my outcome, as is very common with these serious medical diagnoses, is uncertain. Um, do you think I should consider meeting with a palliative care specialist? I think if you're worried at all, worried about anything, thinking yeah. about the future and feeling like the rug has been pulled out from under you. Yeah. Yeah. Like meet with the palliative care team. And, you know, the worst that they're going to say is you're doing a great job and it's normal to feel terrified and give you a little bit of reassurance and explore some of the emotions that the other medical folks may not do. And then you see them never again because you did great. And the lumpectomy was a success and you go about your, your life and and that's fine. Um, but at least you've you've met with the team. And if things don't go the way that you're hoping, like you kind of know what they're about and you can kind of pick up the conversation. And maybe that conversation's once a year, once every six months. Maybe it turns into once every month or week. Um, but it's the palliative care, especially, is kind of meant to be a slider where, you know, when treatment's going well and things are, are working for you, we're kind of in the background just checking in and a, adjusting maybe medications here and there for symptoms. But not all that involved, but as the medications and the treatment start becoming less helpful in terms of letting you live on your own terms and do your thing, that palliative care starts to kind of play a bigger role in shaping your care and coordinating things. And uh, once you finally get to the point where treatment isn't helping at all, that is often when we talk about, well, maybe we should just be making a, a full transition into hospice care because that tends to coincide with when we're measuring time in, in months rather than years. Got it. So say, that that's super helpful, say you're my palliative care doctor and we're having a conversation like we are right now, um, and you've already sort of walked me through some of the conversation points that we would have if I saw you in the office. Mm -hmm. I'd like to pivot into, say I don't have my affairs in order, which I basically don't. I have like some living will that I printed off, <laughs> off of yeah. the internet and wrote some stuff in 10 years ago. So like one, I'd like to pivot into what are some of the port important like legal protections or documentation I would need. So I'd love to start with, can you tell us what a healthcare power of attorney is? And if you don't choose one, what's at least, let's say in the state of Illinois, like what's yeah. the default? All right, I really get to geek out now. Okay. Um, so this stuff is super confusing because it's all, 
super legal jargony. Um, and, and one of the biggest difficulties about advanced directives and living wills is that they're like these legal documents often done by lawyers, but ultimately enforced on by, by doctors. And there's this like weird disconnect where I meet folks who will do these documents with their lawyer, put them in a lockbox somewhere. And then when they come into the hospital, I'm like, do you have an advanced director? Like, yeah, yeah, it's with my lawyer. I was like, that's super not helpful. Like, like what, what does it, it say? Um, because you're super sick right now. And if you have mm-hmm. wishes that need to be discussed, like this is the time to discuss them. Uh, this is mostly relevant for folks who can't have a conversation with me because your, your living, breathing mind trumps whatever you wrote 10 years ago or whatever. Um, yes. Anyways, to answer your question. So the, uh, the the living will the power of attorney the, the the big thing to be aware of is that there was sort of a there's a financial there's financial paperwork that sounds the same like there's financial power of attorney and there's medical power of attorney um mm-hmm. those are separate separate documents um and living will also is confusing because there's a living trust which is like a, a will and a state mm-hmm. thing and then there's the living will which is which is an advanced directive that essentially says if I'm dying of something incurable and terminal, let me let me go peacefully, and I mean that's really all the living will is is just that statement. Uh, okay. But if you're if you're coming in completely blind, completely fresh to any sort of affairs getting in order type of situation, typically as as a palliative doc, I'd first you know figure out like who's in your life, who's important to you, and who who would speak for you if you, we needed to make medical decisions on your behalf like who knows mm-hmm. your your mind and who knows what living means to you better than anyone that would also be comfortable stepping up and advocating for those things uh, who's uh you know who's not going to pass out the moment they walk through the hospital and need to make decisions because that's not super sure. helpful either um and if you have someone and you know not everyone can name someone right away but if you have someone i'd say well let's let's start with a healthcare power attorney which Gives this person authority to act as if they were you. If you, for whatever reason, couldn't tell us what you wanted us to do, um, that's that's a great place to start. And as for someone who's otherwise healthy, that's probably the only advanced care planning that I would really engage in. Mm-hmm. Um, getting into do not resuscitates and and that kind of stuff is really not something I would touch until um, you have a serious illness. We actually kind of have a general sense of what you might die from in the near to medium term future. Um, otherwise, it's it's far too speculative to be helpful. And the, the data actually is pretty bad that doing too much advanced care planning when there's not really anything going on is, is all that helpful. Uh, helpful being defined by getting treatment that's kind of in line with your goals. Um, mm-hmm. But on the, on the legal side, if, with the major disclaimer that I'm not a lawyer, uh, uh, sure. on, on the legal side, I mean, certainly, um, you have meeting with an attorney to talk about like, will will an estate and trust and, and that type of thing. It's never too early to really do that either. Um, but as a completely separate thing that a, a medical office wouldn't be able to help you with. Um, whereas a healthcare power attorney, a living will, your PCP can do that with you. Um, you can generally print it off your state website. Um, there's a great website called prepareforyourcare.org that mm-hmm. um, you may have heard of from other videos mm-hmm. I've done um, that mm-hmm. uh, walks you through creating your own advanced directive and you know, thinking about questions that would be important to you as you got sicker. Um, and you can kind of, there's a little drop them in. You can pick the state that you live in and make sure that it's it's nice and legal because 
Some states require two witnesses, some require one, some you need a notary, some you don't. Um, so it, it's a nice way of kind of avoiding the one-size-fits-all advice that I would, um, wouldn't want to wouldn't do here when it comes to legality of things. But sure. yeah, custom fits it to you. Uh, That's yeah. really helpful. And I wanted to pick apart that a little bit about the advanced directive. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, I mean... You have to individualize it to where you live. Yeah, like some, yeah, you might need to get it notarized. You might have to have it, you know, witnessed by more than one person. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like this is a document that you should share with the important people in your life, or at least let them know that it exists and where it is. Yes. And particularly your physician as well, because I think if you have thoughts and feelings about how you want your health and your healthcare to be managed when you can't make decisions for yourself, I think it's really nice to have that document in place, especially for your healthcare power of attorney, because yeah. they're supposed to be the stand-in of you. They're not making, I'm not making decisions for Matt. I mean, sorry, I'm not making decisions that Julie would want. I'm making decisions as though I'm Matt, you know, when I'm your healthcare power of attorney. Yes. And that's, that can be tricky. The ethics of that are, are hard. Yes. Yes. They're, they're, they're very messy and we try to neatly parse us apart and I think it's messier than that, and I think that's okay. Um, I, I think that's yeah. okay, frankly. Um, but in in general, the there are really two situations where I strongly encourage people to engage in advanced care planning and kind of go through the process of advanced directives. Uh, the first one being if you want care that's different than the default pathway, right? Like you don't mm -hmm. you don't need a piece of paper to tell the docs to do everything, right? That's sort of the default pathway to try to keep you alive as long as possible, and you know, we're going to do that with or without a, a document in place. And hmm. and same for the backup decision maker, right? Uh, in, in Illinois, in any state, if you don't have a healthcare power of attorney, there is a law that outlines like who has like dibs on making decisions for you. And it follows <laughs> a hierarchy that usually starts with a legal guardian, which most of us don't have, but then spouse, adult children, parents, siblings, and kind of and then it kind of goes down the list from there. So if you're if you don't have a legal guardian and you're married and you'd want your spouse to be your decision maker anyways, I mean, that's who the docs are going to go to with or without a power of attorney document. Yeah. Um, so you don't need it per se with some some rare exceptions, um, depending on how much into the weeds you want to go right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, but the, the other category where I do think it's helpful to engage in advanced care planning and these directives is just the excuse to have a conversation. Right, just to mm -hmm. talk to your your close family about what's important to you, what living means to you, what quality of life means to you, and you know, sort of what what lines in the sand you might have in terms of if I got so sick I needed to be in a nursing home, like please God, don't let them put me in a nursing home, son, or you know, whatever, um, mm -hmm. whatever lines you would draw. Which for most people, it's they tell me like, well, I would never want to be like kept alive in a coma or in a vegetative state, and. Mm -hmm. That's a fine place to start, you know, and for some people, they don't, they're like, fine, if, if my heart's beating, keep me alive. And, and that's okay, too. But at, at least as, as a starting point for a conversation that you ought to revisit over time as you get older, as your health changes, but at least the documents are an excuse to start the conversation. Yeah. I love that point so much. I really do. I mean, I, 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 I in my experience, when, when I was having conversations with people about this and they would say, you know, I, we never had this conversation. I think you both have brought up the two most common things that I ever heard was one, the thing Julie already said, which is, I don't know what they would want and I don't want to make the decision. Yeah. 
I would find even sometimes you had a very clear advance directive and the person still was like, I can't do that for them because I feel guilty about it. Yeah. Um, and you're like, no, you're just you're you're acting on what they would want. Um, not you're not doing it. We just mm-hmm. need you for. We need you to say it. We need you to do it because yeah. you're the one that's alive and talking. Yeah. Um, so that's the first situation. But then the, the second situation is just having that conversation, as you just mentioned, because so so many times. We think about them in extremes, like I don't want to be in a coma or I don't want to be on life support. And we think about that person who's been there for like three months and that stuff or, you know, like, yeah, I guess if it was for one day, I'd be fine. But like there's so much middle ground here where like somebody's been on a ventilator for 11 days and the prognosis is 50-50. You don't really know either way. And like, again, you probably can't prepare for every little thing but it is worth having these conversations of like yeah in that case i probably would want that you guys to continue trying versus mm-hmm. you know like coma can mean a lot of things i guess is what i'm trying to say yeah sure um so having that conversation and just it doesn't have to lead to you making a document and knowing every little thing it can just be yeah i remember having this conversation with that person and when this is the, some of the stuff we talked about and i feel like because of that i can kind of extrapolate to this situation that we're currently having. Now. Yeah, and and you're gonna hit the nail on the head there, in that there, it's so hard to predict exactly how things will play out in the future. And even the question of a ventilator, you know, people, you know, I hear all the time say, "Well, I would never want to be on a ventilator." And I was like, "Like really? Like if it was like a day and you could get better from a pneumonia, like would that be okay?" I'm like, "Well, okay, in that case, sure." And I was like, "Some of these documents, like they're not these. There, there's no context to to these documents." And um by and large, we're relying on the people who step in in your place to make decisions uh, for you. And it's more about having conversations with those folks along the way. Um, maybe when another family member dies, kind of reflecting on how they died and what the circumstances were and how, how you feel about that, if that's how you'd want to go or not. Yeah, and there are like moments along the way where you can have conversations like this. And you know, I, I encourage people to take advantage of those moments too. And Creating the documents is is one opportunity to just start a conversation because you are you're not going to come up with like all the decisions you need to make ahead of time. It's it's impossible. Um, but what you can do is give folks a, a, a little window into your mind and how you think and process the world and and decisions uh, to hopefully maybe someday give them something to go on when it comes to making a specific complicated decision down the road. Are you allowed to be kind of like? wordy in in your document like say like because there's there's such a big there's so much in between do everything and dnr right and i think that's the way that we think about it when we think about end of life care it's like well you're just going to do everything you're going to do nothing right and it's like no there's a whole spectrum in between of unpredictable decisions that might need to be made and so like for example what if i said and it's been so long since i wrote it in advance directive but i if i recall correctly i think this is like the gist i was getting at was like if my medical team thinks that continuing aggressive care is likely to be futile to extend my life or return me back to a, a, an, an awake, talking, aware state, then no thank you. Right, right. And I think that that's probably for me would be like, that's I think that's a fair amount of information to go on. And I felt comfortable writing that down. I don't know, yeah. like with that. Does that hold water for you, Matt, as a palliative care doc? Uh, so so that verbiage you're describing is essentially what a living will states. Um, yeah. And I will 
I will say I've very rarely found a living will to really change medical care. Um, Got it. Um, because it's typically, as I said, these are helpful if you want to start a conversation or change the default care. Uh, and the reality is with medicine being so messy and blurry um, in that line between living and, and dying, the, at the point it becomes abundantly clear that you are actively dying, um, and typically this would be in a hospital setting, um, the docs are going to be recommending comfort care either way, unless you specifically have something stating otherwise or a power of attorney who knows your mind and says you wouldn't want those things. Because almost everyone says, if I am very clearly dying and you can't fix me, of course, keep me comfortable. It's that it's that messy in between where it's like, I don't know if you're dying. Maybe maybe you're dying or maybe a best case scenario is you're, you're in a nursing home and debilitated. Like, does that count? Like, technically, that's not... Mm-hmm terminal but it's certainly life-changing and it, it's all that sure. messiness in between where it's so much more important to have a person like they're processing that and, and speaking for you if you can't do it yourself and uh in, impossible to give real actionable guidance very far in advance um with with the exception of having a clear dnr on file which is a a, a whole separate document that's a a, a medical order um we're, we're talking about the post form uh, which is for people who mm-hmm. have clear lines and they don't care about the context. If you're someone who says, I do not care how my heart stops. If my heart stops, don't touch me. Like, let let me go. Um, let, let me be dead. Um, then a DNR would be a good fit for them, presuming they have an illness mm-hmm. for which that's motivating their statements. Um, uh, but other than that, it's very, very hard to get get wordy and, and write things out. Um when it when it comes to medical decisions, um, mm-hmm. the the flip side to that is if you have just general preferences for you know, what you'd like your last days to to look like, who you want to be with, where you want to be, and that sort of thing, there is a a more detailed advanced directive called the Five Wishes document, uh, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. uh, that would be the wordy one, uh, which for some people who <laughs> have a lot of thoughts on what they want their last days to look like, I think I think sure. it's a great fit um, for folks who are overwhelmed by decisions and want to make as few as possible i i wouldn't point them that way got it but that's that's the nice thing you kind of custom fits based on the the needs of the person got it i was going to dive into and i feel like i'm not really going to so we can cut this if we want to but like i love that you made the distinction between advanced directives and healthcare power of attorney. And like, that's where we focused our talk today. But there is a whole other side of this that is like estate planning, Mm, right? Yeah. And I think when you're thinking about putting affairs in order, and we don't really have to have this conversation other than just to say like, yeah, that's not this conversation, which is like, yeah, like that's a will and a trust. And, you know, those things probably are a little bit more expensive and time consuming because they do involve lawyers. And, you know, and I think that that might be the types of like, affairs in order that don't relate just directly to your healthcare and your healthcare de- care delivery and just like your kind of emotional and physical needs around the time of your death. It's more just like, all right, where does my money go? What is probate court? What is all this stuff? And I think when you get into that side of things, one, I guess the only real question I have about that is, are is part of palliative care or anybody on the palliative care team, like you mentioned, potentially social workers, is any part of that, like, at least to, like, guide people to a certain place or to do you have any suggestions for people that if they ever ask you, like, who do I talk to about estate planning? Yeah, I think certainly that would be 
typically within the wheelhouse of a social worker to kind of guide you towards yeah. like who would who ought you be talking to to get those things in order and mm -hmm. depending on their savviness we can often walk you through like do you need a lawyer for these things or are these things that sure. you can do here and a common one being the healthcare power attorney which a lot of i've i've come across some cranky lawyers on instagram or like you can't be giving legal advice by telling people they can do a healthcare power attorney it's like dude like it's literally on the medicare website that a pcb can do this like i don't I don't know what to tell you, man. Um, like, <laughs> I hope you can still feed your children and stuff. Um, but sure. uh, so I, I, I think there is uh, there is some benefit to having a social worker like tell you, like, is is this actually a legal issue and kind of guiding you towards the mm. things that very clearly are versus the things that maybe we can do on our own. Just something as simple Got as, it. hey, like, do you have a beneficiary on your bank account and your retirement accounts? Because yeah. you don't need a lawyer for that. And that's not it's not legal advice. That's just, you know something you can do now if you logistics yeah yeah <laughs> yeah keep it hipaa compliant but are there any cases either recently that you've had or some that stand out as more of like career-based cases that would be something that would be interesting to listen to that you've had to like take patients through uh in terms of financial planning no absolutely <laughs> not zero chance i want to listen to that no, I'm talking about the, the good stuff, the palliative stuff, the hospice stuff, something where it kind of like was very illustrative of kind of like what you do and what you experience. Um, I, well, I think a typical, well, a case I was having recently is oftentimes we'll get referrals when like things are very kind of like clearly moving towards comfort care and hospice care. And sometimes mm. we'll get consulted alongside hospice care um, and I'll... So you just show up twice? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say, well, like, why do you... <laughs> Like, why do you need us? But I, I have a typical general guideline that I follow. We can always add value in, in something to some way. So mm -hmm. um, the other day I was meeting with someone who kind of got the, kind of the double hospice palliative care consult. Uh, and they were just having, like, they like they agreed to hospice because basically they were told, like, this is all we can do. And it wasn't exactly mm -hmm. like a, a patient-centered decision. It was just, like, this is all we got left, like, See ya. Um, and, and they were in, in having an enormous amount of anguish and distress and just uh, very existentially suffering at the thought of not being with their family uh, and just not existing, like the stuff that just like will keep you up at night. And uh, and we sat with them for a long time and just walked through that and didn't offer fixes per se, but just sort of normalized it all to say, yeah, like yeah, this sucks. Um, this is this is really hard. Let's think about how we can make the most of your time with your family. Like what can we do with these precious moments that you have? Um, and was able to really get her to a place where hospice did actually make sense uh, and that she was excited to do it. Um, and um, along, alongside all that, we also tended to symptom management and, um, and alongside all that existential distress, poor thing was horrendously constipated. And no. <laughs> Uh, and one of our, our real skills in palliative care is getting people's bowels moving. And um, yeah. good job. we tweaked that bowel regimen, had a, a big old BM the next day. And Love and it. this lady was smiling ear to ear. She was just, uh, yeah. I got a new lease on life from that, uh, from just the evacuation um, between both, <laughs> both of, both of rectum and, and spirit. Um, um, you may you may not be an avid listener of our podcast, but are you using digestive enzymes from super green powders to get that going, or oh, is, shut is, is up, it's... Jeremy? <laughs> we just did an episode on our super yeah, greens powders. 
good for you or not, but that's that's a great that's good. It's a good call vector. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think you're using bigger guns than that is my sense. <laughs> Just uh, I can imagine. my old buddy sending a Miralax. We get we get the job done. Yeah. 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 Good stuff. Uh but I I well, but I, mean, I um I, I like that case because yeah. it kind of highlights kind of the whole spectrum of things we do yeah. just the, the the physical symptom management the existential symptoms and just the notion that like we we managed to find value kind of no no matter where just add supports even when and i'm not i'm not sure what we're going to do before we walk into that room but we always walk out of a room having added value in, in some meaningful way that's a great case and i i definitely don't think we want to undersell the value of a good bm no everybody not, not at all the it is you don't need to be dying to appreciate that to make it your quality of life improve. Absolutely. Well, I mean, Matt, that's exactly what I was talking about before when I was trying to make parallels between end of life care and preventive medicine. But the prevention of that anguish is really, I think, where you're coming in, or the assuaging of that anguish and to making this very scary, unpredictable situation feel a little bit safer and a little bit more predictable, even though it's death, you know, and yeah. it's the the path towards death. I think is very, very valuable and uh, and clearly, yeah, just it's coming for all of us. But I think the the way that palliative care holds people in the middle, like patient, you said, like being totally patient centered matters so much. And I think that every specialty could learn from that. Julie, and, I also I heard a lot of like acknowledging the anguish and just being like, uh, yeah, I mean, anybody in your situation would be feeling this. And you're like, oh, well, OK. Yeah. You know, like it, it like it doesn't need treatment to f your anguish doesn't need treatment. Yeah. Right. I, I There's uh, yeah validation. There's um, I think one thing that we can all do is just is just name stuff. And there is a lot of mm -hmm. therapeutic value in naming stuff. And we kind of we've kind of been doing this for for decades now in medical training, right? Like we're our diagnosis, like it's everything's about the diagnosis. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, traditionally it's a diagnosis then begets a treatment. Um, but in, in a lot of cases, just just the name, just the name of, of the thing can be therapeutic in and of itself. I don't know how much you follow uh, the the news, but the, the Daily had a podcast recently, the New York Times about, it was a couple of weeks ago, about a woman who her advanced directives change, but she has dementia. Are you familiar with this at all? Oh, I didn't catch that one, no. Hmm. It's a really interesting case because it's basically talking about the fact that like 10 years before when she was not avidly like really demented, she made wishes. And then 10 years later, she now has very florid dementia, but otherwise is alive and well and changed her directives. Oh. And who do you listen to? Hmm. Um. And the case is very interesting in terms of like the legal aspects of it that they were going through. And, you know, the daughters wanted to go by the old um, wishes because that was when she was lucid and was her and the woman and her new significant other wanted to go by the new wishes because who cares what she was 10 years ago? It's mm -hmm. what she's saying now, whether she's demented or not. This is what she says she wants. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, so not familiar with, with that specific situation, but what I will say is we are often caught in the, a very common ethical tension between autonomy and agency and allowing mm -hmm. a person to have a say in control of their life and their medical decisions to the greatest extent possible, uh, while also trying to protect them from harm, the whole do no harm thing. Um, mm -hmm. and Oftentimes, there is a tension between trying to protect someone from something bad that is foreseeable and letting them 
make bad decisions uh, or at least make decisions that we wouldn't make for ourselves or for someone close to us and trying to carefully walk that line. Um, Certainly there's a place to evaluate decision-making capacity and, and, and even when one lacks full capacity, it, it is, it does get tricky when they clearly are aware of their surroundings and when things are abnormal and how do you give them as much control over their, over their lives and, honor their personhood even if they even if they're demented right because they still like they're still aware of what's going on um and that's uh um certainly a a lot of what we try to balance in palliative care too um but yeah that's a i would imagine that the palliative like the palliative care people were involved in that case a little bit too but obviously there's a lot of legal aspects it was very interesting because it led to a lot of like it just leads to a lot of unanswered questions you listen as the listener and you're like God, that's those are good questions. Like, mm. like, what do you do in that situation? Yeah. So, I was just interested if you'd seen it. Just as a last little pivot, um, it, just because it was on my outline and I wanted to come back to it, can you explain what respite care is and as it relates to like hospice benefits or like um, palliative care benefits? I just oh, don't yeah. know if a lot of people understand have heard of respite care. Yeah, so respite care is a, a cool little perk in in the hospice benefit, and it is designed mm. for a caregiver relief. Uh, and the way respite works under the hospice benefit is that uh, your your hospice team will coordinate um, whoever the person in hospice is. They will take care of them in a facility. Um, depending on which hospice you're working with, that might be within a hospital or a hospice unit or or a nursing facility. Um, but they'll mm-hmm. provide custodial care, routine care um, for up to five days while you as the caregiver can go to a graduation or a wedding or just, you know, chill out for five days um but yeah they'll take care of your person for five days and then they come home and gonna resume resume care there oh my god it's beautiful that's yeah. amazing yeah and i think you know again kind of calling back to the notion that hospice really shines when you have months to work with them not not hours or days because if you sign up for hospice when you've got you know 12 hours to live you're probably not going to get a lot of benefit from that respite thing um but yeah, it's it really is designed for you know providing support for for months. I really only have one other thing I want to ask, and I I will say I I think that people like yourself, Doctor Tyler, and many other people that we've had both on the podcast and would love to have on the podcast, we just absolutely are in awe of the work that you guys put out. In addition to the fact that you know each specialty and each different interest that 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 people are putting out evidence-based stuff really just is helpful. And the more that more people are doing it, the more good information swallows bad information. Um, So we really appreciate that. Everybody who puts information out onto social media is met by trolls. I just want to know who's trolling the jury, like the palliative care and, and hospice doctor. Like what could you possibly say in their comments? I want to know. Um, Yeah. So, uh, so Julie and I were talking before you jumped on that, um, Instagram by and large has been just massively friendly and, and welcoming, uh, yeah. to, to my content, uh, and uh, as they should, as, be. as they should be, um, <laughs> because before Instagram, I, I spent many years on, on Twitter, um, uh, or X, if we're actually calling that with a straight face. Um, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I'll say by and large, it's been just a very positive reception in a way. I, I never really intended to spend much time on Instagram, but a friend had, go to me to posting some of my my short form youtube stuff on there 
mm-hmm. and it, it just exploded. And I just got thank you after thank you from people um, for the content. And I said, okay, I guess, I guess I'm on Instagram now. Um, but um, no, I, the only, uh, there's been like some catfishing attempts um, that are very, very obvious. Um, so no, mm-hmm. no affairs for me either. Um, but, uh, and then uh, every now and then when I do something about advanced directives, I'll have a lawyer come in and tell me to like stay in my lane. And I just sort of, uh, I, 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 I've been on Twitter enough that I'm sort of like, like a, gr- a grizzled yeah. war veteran on social media now. Um, uh, but for, it's been surprising, surprisingly positive there. Do you ever get any of like hospice killed my grandma? You know, like we yeah. didn't give all the morphine to peepaw and mama oh yeah we yeah we said we'd come back to the the hospice killing people thing too um and i guess we i guess we kind (laughs) of did uh the murder sandwich yeah Yeah. we we did tangentially and and honestly when people say that uh i i have a rule where i never i never argue with people about their lived experience uh no sure and um and and the and the really sad reality is that there's massive variability in hospices and like there there are shitty hospices out there that that Mm-hmm. that sell you a pretty picture with a nice brochure and they abandon you. Um, and awful. I don't, I don't know. Like I wasn't there when, if that person says like they, they kill, they killed grandma. Like, I mean, it's possible. It's possible that, um, like something bad really happened. Um, I still mm-hmm. firmly believe in like the beauty of hospice and, and the good that it does. Mm-hmm. But like those stories are also true. And, one of the other talents of palliative care docs is holding two conflicting truths at the same time, and that's that's one of them. Like, yes, hospice is great, and yes, there are there are bad hospices out there. Um, yeah, for sure, um, man. I mean, there's bad doctors. We yeah, talk about that all the time. Yeah. Doesn't mean that all doctors are bad. You already mentioned that yeah. once. And in addition, it certainly doesn't mean that you should go to un, uh, uncertified, unlicensed uh, people doing crazy things for a lot of money just because you there's bad doctors. Yeah. Yeah. So when so when people throw stuff like hospice killed mom or dad at me, I'll say I'm I'm sorry then to take good care of you. I'll say I'm 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 really sorry that happened. Um and then if very, very rarely are they actually trying to bait me in, in, into an argument. I think that's happened once where like someone was being incredibly flippant and I didn't pick up on it right away. Mm-hmm. And then they just like actually started being nasty and I was like, Okay, we're just gonna oh. delete block and move on and and, and, and that was it. Okay. Oh Man. Nasty to the palliative and hospice guy. Yeah, if, if, is there no sacred place anymore? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tread tread carefully wherever, whenever you go on social. <laughs> Speaking of social, uh, have you seen the hospice nurses that were doing the trend of like, uh, they were saying like, we're hospice nurses, like the, where you like walk back and forth. Yep. And there was just one that I saw so sweetly that it was like, well, ho- we're hospice nurses. You can have whiskey in the morning if you want to. <laughs> We're hospice nurses. You can have a cigarette, even if you're dying of lung cancer. We don't give a shit. <laughs> have what you want. You know, like, and it was just so lovely to have them go back and forth, and they're just these two lovely people. Yeah, saying like, "Yeah, we're here to make you happy and comfortable because you're dying. Good for you." Yeah, uh, I I haven't seen that one, but that sounds very unbranded. Uh, and and part of what what drew me to palliative care as as an intern uh, was just the whole flipping of the script and moving away from like the doctor tells you to do this and don't do this and just mm-hmm. saying like what can i do for you how can i help you live better and just let the answer be whatever it is and like and lean into it um and i've really and when it comes to like the whiskey and the cigarettes it's like i mean like yeah it's your life man like if if that's what you want to do like that's fine just you know live your best life i love it 
Um, how best can people connect with you or get more information? Um, I will link uh, howtotrainyourdoctor.com in the show notes. And it sounds like your YouTube and your Instagram seem to be the main platforms these days. Any Anything else you'd like to plug or share? Yeah, certainly my, my website has kind of the landing page. So if you're looking for any of those other things, there's links there. Um, there's also a, a free free download on that website, the, the Conversation Kickstarter, which for folks who are... Mm-hmm just completely new to all this and they want to start engaging their doc about what's important to them, what matters most to them. Um, there's, you can check that out. That's pretty, pretty easy to use. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I, I tend to ban Instagram mostly. Um, if uh, you're looking for any sort of video content, it's either going to be Instagram and I, when I can post longer stuff on YouTube and, uh, yeah, check me out. Any uh, last words, Jeremy? Nope. This was wonderful. Thank you both for having me on. This is a a great chat. Thank you. I love it. I love it. So when it comes to palliative care, don't do too little too late. Listen to your doctor friends. (laughs) The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>